First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with all gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's no greater privilege than to gather together with my fellow brothers and sisters here this morning and to hear you speak the truth of your word to us. Lord, in your word, you have revealed to us who you are. You have revealed to us your plan of redemption. You have revealed to us the glorious good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have also revealed to us how it is that you want us to live. And so, Lord, as we behold the glories of the gospel, as we behold the glories of your character, we pray that your spirit would come that you would remove anything that would stop us from hearing from you this morning, that you would soften our hard hearts, Lord, and incline them towards you and illuminate our minds to understand what your word is teaching to us this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that we need your spirit to do this. We can't do it on our own. So come, spirit, empower this weak and broken preacher and come, spirit, and empower these broken and weak listeners. May we hear from you together this morning that you might be glory, glorified. May none of us walk away from here this morning unchanged. We ask this in the name of the one who can accomplish this, Jesus, the sovereign Lord. Amen. Well, it's kind of crazy to think about for me personally because right around this time of year, summertime, about 10 years ago, a decade ago, some of you are going to laugh because you're going to say, you're really young to be pointing these sorts of things out, but about a decade ago is when I became a Christian. It's when the Lord radically transformed my heart and my life. I mean, in radical ways. And it was kind of, kind of a weird deal for me because I grew up in a Christian home. More than just growing up in a Christian home, I grew up in a home where my dad was a pastor. 
I mean, we planted churches together. We, I, I played drums in the, the church worship band. I would, I would lead Sunday school. I would pray. I, I would do whatever needed to be done. And yet, I, I wasn't a changed person. My heart hadn't been regenerated. And then when I was 16 years old, a sophomore in high school, the Lord reached out and changed my heart. And it's fun for me to reminisce about those early days. It's fun for me to think about. I, I, I like to go back and read uh, my journals from, from when I first became a believer and just look at the things that the Lord was doing, what he was teaching me, the passions that he was instilling in my heart. And it's encouraging me, for me to look back because everything changed for me. I went from being a person, like most kids who grew up in Christian homes, who only read their Bible when they had to, to just devouring Scripture. I mean, I would read it when we were at church or when we were with the family, but when I was by myself, it wasn't really something that I did or even really desired to do. But now I found myself feeding deeply on the scriptures and wanting to know as much as I possibly could. And I went from being someone who hated reading any sort of book, you know, the type that only would read if, if he had to. I, went, I wanted to be outside as a kid. I, I wanted to be doing something, playing basketball or soccer or whatever it was. I didn't want to be reading a book. But I went from that guy to being a person that was being called an intellectual because of all the books he was reading. And I thought to myself, I'm not an intellectual. I just love Jesus. And I want to know as much about him as I possibly can. And I couldn't quench this desire to know as much as I possibly could about him. I was praying I was fasting, I was evangelizing, I was disciplined, I was putting sin to death, I was manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, I was fellowshipping with other believers. It was incredible. There was no doubt in my mind, God had changed me, and I was loving the changes that he brought about. But you know what? Somewhere along the way, something terrible happened. I started to become impressed with myself. For all my zeal, for all of my grandiose ideas, I was in serious need of more humility. And over time, the Lord began to show me just how prideful I was. I started to realize how in the flesh I was taking the things that God had told me to do in his word, his commandments, his law, and I was using them to exalt myself. I was essentially in a word a Pharisee. Do you remember who the Pharisees were? They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day whose full-time job was to pursue righteousness by obeying God's law, by obeying God's commands. That's what they did 24-7 was pursue righteousness. They were like the sanctification superstars of Jesus' day. I think that's how I'm going to start referring to the Pharisees. But the problem with the Pharisees was that they were pursuing righteousness not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. They didn't fast because they wanted to glorify God. They fasted because they wanted to glorify themselves. Look how holy we are. They didn't want to pray because they wanted to glorify God. They prayed because they wanted to glorify themselves. Look how humble we are. They didn't give financially to the poor because they wanted to glorify God. They gave because they wanted to glorify themselves. Look how sacrificial we are. And because Jesus knew that this was their motivation for pursuing righteousness, he rebuked them. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus saved some of his harshest rebukes for this band of self-righteous hypocrites. We all remember the famous woes that Jesus spoke to them. So that's who the Pharisees were. And so you can imagine how humbled I was to realize that I was one of those guys. It was a humbling realization. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I still struggle with that to this day. I still struggle with wanting to use God's law to exalt myself. And if you struggle with the same thing, as I imagine most of you do, you know what a roller coaster ride it can create for you spiritually. When you think you're doing well in obeying God's law, you feel really proud and confident. So when you've been fighting sin and reading your Bible and praying and evangelizing and fellowshipping and serving and doing all the things a Christian should, you feel on top of the world, right? But when you think you're doing poorly in obeying God's law, you feel really depressed and you despair. You guys know what I'm talking about? But what I want you to realize, what God has been teaching me over the years, and I am slowly learning, is that we are abusing God's law when we do this. God didn't give us his law so that we could use it to point to ourselves. God gave us his law to point us and others to Jesus. We abuse God's law when we use it to exalt ourselves. And you see, the question really becomes a matter of the heart. Who are you treasuring? Are you treasuring yourself? Because if you are, you'll use everything in your life to exalt yourself and point others to you. But if you're treasuring Jesus, then you'll use all things to exalt Jesus and point others to him. And it's a battle, isn't it? It's a battle for each one of us. We're not always treasuring Jesus. Sometimes we're treasuring ourselves more than Jesus. And that's because there's a battle raging between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh fights to exalt ourselves. The spirit fights to exalt Jesus. And a war wages and rages between the two. That's irreconcilable. Thankfully, Jesus has conquered the flesh so that it no longer reigns in our hearts. The spirit now reigns in our hearts. But the battle still rages, doesn't it? And we feel it. But we continue to fight as the Spirit empowers us to treasure Jesus more. And so what I want us to see this morning is what our fight to treasure Jesus looks like. What does our fight to treasure Jesus look like? And it looks like three things. And I hope you're really impressed. They all start with a P. I had to work really hard on that just for you guys. First of all, participating in gospel-centered community. Participating in gospel-centered community. Second of all, persevering in gospel-centered suffering persevering in gospel-centered suffering, and thirdly, preparing for gospel-centered witness. Preparing for gospel-centered witness. So first of all, let's look at participating in gospel-centered community. Participating in gospel-centered community. Look at verse 8 with me. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, in these verses, Peter is telling all of us as Christians what a gospel-centered community should look like, what the church, what our relationships, what our interactions should look like. And what's sad to me 
honestly, is that in our day and age, you'd be hard-pressed to get a lot of people who claim to love Jesus to even enter into the doors of a church and fellowship with other believers. Have you run into these people? You know who I'm talking about? They, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I love Jesus. And then you ask them what church they go to. And they, oh no, I don't go to church. I don't, I don't fellowship. That, that's, that church thing's just not for me. Organized religion, that's been abused. That's not for me. Um, it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. You guys know who I'm talking about? You run into these people? And I got to tell you, it genuinely saddens me when I talk to them. And it saddens me for two reasons. First and foremost, it betrays their love for Jesus. It does. It betrays their love for Jesus. Because if they loved Jesus truly, deeply, they would love Jesus' bride. They would love the church. If they were truly committed to Christ as a result of the work the Spirit was doing in them, they would be deeply committed to the bride of Christ. It's that simple. And second of all, it saddens me because they're clearly disobeying Scripture to their own harm. What does Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 say? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it's a sad cultural trend that we see amongst professing believers that we need to be praying about, praying for those people, pursuing those people. Not that they necessarily come to sovereign grace, but that they get into fellowship with other believers. But for those of us here, for those of us who desire to be, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, in gospel-centered community, what does Peter tell us? Well, he gives us a list of five traits. You can see them right there in verse 8 that are to characterize us as a gospel-centered community. And I want you to take note that these aren't things that we do. They're not actions. They're attitudes of the heart, first and foremost, that then will cause us to act in certain ways. And I actually think that Peter lays these out, these five traits, as a chiasm. You ever heard of a chiasm before? That's your 25-cent word of the day, C-H-I-A-S-M. Um, a chiasm is a literary structure that the biblical authors would use, and it couples ideas together. It lists them out, and it kind of puts them together uh, in a, the way that they go together. So, for example, I think Peter couples unity of mind with humility of mind. So the first thing that's listed and the fourth thing. Then he, he couples together sympathy, the second thing that he lists, with tenderheartedness, the third thing that he lists. And what does that leave smack in the middle? Brotherly love. Brotherly love is smack in the middle of it. And here's what I think Peter is telling us by laying it out this way. First of all, that humility of mind, what he mentions first, will lead to unity of mind. Humility of mind will lead to unity of mind in the church. So what is humility of mind? You hear a lot of people talking about humility and the way some people try to live humble lives in the church is they will never let you pay them a compliment. You know, you're really good at, oh no, I'm not. I'm this person, by the way. If you ever try to compliment, oh no, 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 no. And that's not what, it doesn't mean saying, oh, I'm good at this, or I'm poor at that. Just speaking poorly and thinking poorly of ourselves. That's not what a humble mind is. A humble mind is thinking rightly about ourselves and about the world around us. Well, how do we think rightly about ourselves and the world around us? By aligning ourselves with Scripture. 
by submitting ourselves humbly to God's word. And what Peter is telling us is, as we humbly submit ourselves as individuals to God's word, we will then experience unity of mind corporately as a body. Because as we align ourselves with what God has called us as a church to do, we'll then be moving in formation together because we have this unity of mind. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that we're all going to look the same and dress the same and have the same lifestyle. Not all of you are called to be in full-time pastoral ministry. It doesn't mean that you're going to, and I'm not called to do whatever your calling is. So we're going to be unique and varied, but in that diversity, there's going to be a unity because we've submitted ourselves to God's word and what he's called us to as a church, and we line up together and push forward. The second thing that Peter lays out for us is that a tender heart will lead to sympathy. A tender heart will lead to sympathy. The word tender heart here literally means to feel for someone in your gut. It's not so much an action as it is this feeling that you have deep inside of you. The thing that popped into my head when I I started to study it was, it's like gut love. It's like I love you so much that I, I feel it inside And because we have that love for each other, that compassionate love, it's going to manifest itself in a way of sympathy. We're going to be sympathetic towards each other. What does that mean? That means when you're going through something, I'm going to feel it. I'm going to feel as if I am walking that mile in your shoes with you. I love you so much and I have such strong affections for you that when you are suffering or when you're experiencing joy, I probably don't feel it to the same extent that you do, but I still feel it. I feel it as if I was in your shoes. So that tenderheartedness leads to that kind of sympathy. And thirdly, Peter tells us that brotherly love is at the center of it all. Brotherly love is at the center of it all. And one commentator that I read said that brotherly love means we're affectionately sensitive, quick to feel and to show affection for one another. And the only way that that's going to happen is when we realize that we actually are brothers and sisters of each other. We're, we're a part of the family of God. We have been redeemed by Christ. And since we're united to him, all of us, we are then united together. And we're a part of the family of God, adopted siblings of Jesus. And because of his great love, for you. I love you as well. Because of the Father's love for you, I love you as well as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the kind of community that we're being called to, the kind of gospel-centered community that God is glorified in. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly high calling, isn't it? It's a lot easier to just go through the motions than to feel that kind of affection for each other. It's difficult. How do we command our affections? But so what I want to ask you this morning is, how are we doing at these things, Sovereign Grace? Are we characterized by humility of mind that leads to unity of mind? Are we characterized by tenderheartedness that leads to sympathy? Are we characterized by brotherly love? And the truth is, we fall short, don't we? We do. I know I do. And here's how we do it. Here's how we fall short in each one of these categories. We usually fall short in humility of mind and destroy the possibility of unity of mind in one of two ways. And see which category you fit into. I'll let you know which one I fit into. Some of us thoughtlessly conform 
to what everyone else is thinking without asking whether or not it conforms to God's word. You know that person? And this is pride. This, that's me, by the way. I just want to go with the flow. And that's pride because we care more about people thinking well of us than about humbling ourselves to God's word. And that's not humility of mind. It's not humility of mind at all. On the other hand, this may be some more of you, some of us thoughtlessly contradict everyone else without asking whether or not they conform to God's word. This is also pride because we just want to air our own opinion and show that we wield power by slowing down the process. And you've run into both types of people and all of us are one type of this person. See how we do this? And we usually fall short, secondly, in being tender-hearted and destroy the possibility of sympathy by being hard-hearted and self-protective. You, have you run into these people? They've been hurt in the past. They've reached out relationally to somebody and they've been hurt. They, they were once tender-hearted and sympathetic and trying to love the people of God, but they were hurt. And so rather than entrusting themselves to God and saying, God allowed in his sovereignty for me to experience that hurt for my good. I don't know why, but I know he's allowed it. So I'm going to entrust myself to him and continue to be sympathetic and tender-hearted. We say, no, I don't trust God. I've got to take matters into my own hands. And so they disconnect. Rather than being tender-hearted, they become hard-hearted to the point where you can't even love anything. And so instead of being sympathetic towards each other, what happens? We become self-protective. And the potential, the calling that God has called us to, to be a gospel-centered, tender-hearted, sympathetic community is destroyed. And you know why all of this is happening? It's because we don't really love each other. It's because when we are loving each other, we're doing it self selfishly. Not selflessly, selfishly, we're using each other for our own ends. Rather than seeking to exalt and treasure Jesus in the context of the church, we're seeking to exalt and treasure ourselves. So we really struggle with this, don't we? But the good news, I don't want you to miss this. I don't get to spend as much time on all of this as I would like to. But the good news is that Jesus has done perfectly for us what we have failed to do. Jesus was perfectly humble in mind. He perfectly submitted himself to the will of the Father. It's clear from when Jesus was tempted in the desert that he was constantly meditating on the word of God and submitting his mind to the Father's word. And he was perfectly united in mind with the Father and the Spirit. He always did the will. Because of his humility of mind as an individual, he experienced that unity of mind with the Father and the Son. Jesus was also perfectly tender-hearted. He loved us and sympathetically became a man and entered into our suffering. He suffered his entire life for us with the climax being on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. And Jesus was perfectly loving towards us, his adopted siblings. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. You see, brothers and sisters, this is how we participate in gospel-centered community. We repent of our selfishness, become aware of it, we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. And then, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we follow his example. 
So it's not this guilt. I don't want you to feel like this guilt is weighing down on you, that I put this burden on your back. Know that Jesus has fulfilled it for you and now walk in the freedom of that as his spirit empowers you. That's what being a gospel-centered community is all about. And for those of you out there who call Sovereign Grace your home, who come here week after week and you're not plugged into a grace group, I encourage you, come find me. Go talk to Chad or Ashley or Karen. Let us know. We want to get you plugged in because that's really where we as a community live out the gospel-centered community that we're talking about. It's not going to happen on a Sunday morning service. It's just too difficult. We experience a little bit of that. But where it really happens, the nitty-gritty is in the context of a grace group and where we start to share our lives with each other and where we're characterized by what God has called us to. So we've seen that treasuring Jesus looks like participating in gospel-centered community. Secondly, let's see how treasuring Jesus looks like persevering in gospel-centered suffering. Persevering in gospel-centered suffering. Look at verses 9 through 14 with me. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now in these verses, Peter transitions from giving us instructions as Christians in our interactions with other Christians to now giving us instructions as Christians as we interact with the world, those outside of the church, unbelievers. And specifically, he tells us how to interact with those who we are experiencing suffering from, at whose hands we are experiencing suffering. And the first thing that he says is to not return evil for evil. That is, when we experience suffering, when we are cursed and reviled and evil is done against us, we aren't to retaliate, but instead we are to bless. Specifically, he says that we are not to speak evil, that we are to guard our tongue from deceit when we are suffering. Instead, what does he say to do? He tells us to bless those who persecute us. He tells us to use our speech to bless those who do evil to us. And one of my favorite examples of this in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 7, the story of Stephen. You remember that he was before the religious leaders and preached this scathing sermon to them. And they were so upset at what he was telling them that they were literally gnashing their teeth at him. Their teeth were flashing with anger and they were hurling insults at him and cursing at him. And so they grabbed him, pulled him outside of the city gates and they started to take their cloaks off so that they could really wind up because they were getting ready to stone him. And you remember as they pummeled insults at him and pummeled these rocks at him, what were, what were his dying words? With his dying breath, he said, Lord, he prayed for them. He said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He prayed that they would repent. He prayed that they would turn to Jesus. He prayed that they would turn from their wickedness. And you know what the amazing thing to me is? Who was standing right there 
as Stephen was being stoned? Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. God heard that prayer. And you see the blessing that came as a result when in the face of evil, he prayed for those who were persecuting him, returning evil for good. Peter also tells us to seek peace. He tells us if we have a quarrel with someone, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Go and seek reconciliation as soon as possible. I mean, Jesus even says if you're worshiping at the temple and you're right about to sacrifice your, your offering, just leave it there and go be reconciled to your brother. Nothing's more important than that. That reconciliation and that seeking peace. And these instructions of Peter's are so simple, aren't they? They're so simple. They're so clear. It doesn't even take a whole lot of exposition to make it clear to you. But they're extremely difficult, aren't they? They're extremely difficult for us. In the flesh, our first instinct is to retaliate when evil is done against us. Instead of blessing those who cause us to suffer, we curse them, don't we? Even if we don't do it um, externally, we do it internally, don't we? We may not punch them in the face or cuss them out like we'd like to, but in our hearts, we become bitter and we replay their offense against us over and over and over again. And far too often, we do speak evil against those who harm us, don't we? We speak evil about them to their face in attempts to run them down, and we'll speak evil about them behind their back as well so that we can drag their reputation through the mud. Because the fact of the matter is, when we are suffering, we don't do the best job guarding our tongue, do we? You want to know why that is? The suffering doesn't put anything in our hearts that isn't already there. It just squeezes it out, and it comes flying out. And oftentimes, it's horrific. And more often than not, we don't pursue peace and reconciliation. Some of us love to hold grudges. You know these people? Someone commits an offense against them, and rather than seeking peace, pursuing reconciliation as quickly as possible, they hold on to it, and they just savor it, and this root of bitterness goes right down inside of them. It affects them physically. It affects their joy. It affects their relationships with those who are closest to them. It poisons their entire well. And it's sad. They can't see what it's doing to themselves. But we need to be people that pursue peace. You see, in the midst of intense suffering, it's easy for us to ignore our biblical calling to bless and not curse and give in to the ways of the flesh, isn't it? But again, the good news, the good news is that Jesus has come to do on our behalf what we failed to do. I don't know if you realize this, but, but Isaiah 53, earlier on, that Russ read to us this morning, talks about how Jesus suffered his entire life. Yes, it culminated on the cross, but he suffered his entire life. I mean, when he was born into this world, what's one of the first things that almost happened to him? He was almost killed as a baby by Herod. So from the very beginning, he experienced suffering and persecution at the hands of men. But you also see throughout the pages of Scripture, that he, throughout his entire life, perfectly blessed those who cursed him. You see this most poignantly on the cross. As he suffered unjustly, what did he pray for those who were murdering him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was praying that those who were persecuting him, murdering him, would repent and turn from their sins and come to believe in him. And Jesus always sought reconciliation and pursued peace 
with all men. And because Jesus has perfectly suffered in our place, we can now suffer as well. We can suffer well as well as his spirit empowers us to bless when we are cursed, to do good when we are reviled, and to seek peace where there needs to be reconciliation. We're going to fail along the way. Don't think that we won't. But as we do, we will continue to battle against the flesh. Look to how Jesus has perfectly done it for us and then say, I want to live that way as well. I want to be as much like my Savior as I possibly can. I want to treasure him and bring glory and honor to his name. So we've seen that treasuring Jesus looks like participating in gospel-centered community, persevering in gospel-centered suffering, and thirdly, let's see how treasuring Jesus looks like preparing for gospel-centered witness. Preparing for gospel-centered witness. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, in these verses, Peter is telling us that we, as God's people, need to be all about sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. And it's interesting to me that in the section where he's talking about this, the first thing that he says is, don't be afraid of those who you're going to share Jesus with. And that's interesting to me for this reason. I think that most of us don't share Jesus as frequently as we should because we're afraid of other people. We're afraid of how they're going to respond or what questions they're going to ask us or what they're going to say to us. And so we don't do it. For example, let me just ask, how many of you have shared Jesus with somebody in the last week? Raise your hand. In the last week. That's pretty good. Okay. What about in the last month? Okay. We're doing better. What about the last three months? Okay. This is actually really encouraging, guys. Good job. Um, What about the last year? Okay, there we go. Well, you know what I think? Here's what I think. I think that those of you who didn't raise your hand and aren't sharing Jesus with other people very frequently, don't do so because you're afraid of them. And what Peter is telling us here is that we aren't to fear man, we're to fear God. That's why he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 14, which says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Listen to this. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, not man. And he will become a sanctuary. He'll become a sanctuary to us. We'll we'll find refuge in him. But for those who oppose us, they'll become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The point is clear. We are to fear God not man. And so what does it mean to fear God? We hear people say all the time, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what does that mean? And let me just tell you, it doesn't mean that we as Christians are to be afraid that God's going to come down and pummel us into the earth um, in his anger. We're not to, that does not mean what, that's not what it means to fear God. 
What it means to fear God as a Christian is to love him and reverence him and be in awe of him and be so overwhelmed by him that we don't want to do anything that displeases him. Not out of fear of punishment because Jesus has already experienced all of our punishment on the cross, but because we love him and because we know that he loves us. Now you may be wondering, what does that have to do with evangelism? What does fearing God have to do with evangelism? Everything. Because again, if you are fearing God, if you fear displeasing your loving heavenly father more than you displease, more than you fear displeasing whoever you're sharing the gospel with, you're going to do it anyway. You don't care that it's going to displease them and what the ramifications are for you. You're going to share the gospel anyway because of how much you fear the Lord. Peter goes on to tell us that we should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And some of you may be thinking to yourselves, that's why I'm afraid, Jason. I'm afraid because I don't feel prepared to share the gospel at all. And that's a, that's a legitimate answer to a certain extent. And so I want to encourage you with some good news. We are going to be offering an evangelism class. What do you think, Chad? Like 2011 in January? So mark that on your calendars. We do want to train you for how to do this. But in the meantime, let me encourage you in this way. Well, first of all, let me ask you, what do you think being prepared means? Oftentimes we have way too high idea of what it means to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. It doesn't mean being able to answer every conceivable question that someone's going to raise about Christianity. It doesn't mean being able to dismantle secular humanism or naturalism or, or be able to lay out all the arguments for the existence of God. That's not what it means. Whatever you think being prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. You want to know the best way to be prepared? The easiest way, well, I don't know if it's the easiest, the simplest way to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you? Preach the good news to yourself daily, hourly, moment by moment of every single day. We need to root ourselves firmly in the gospel and then sharing it with others will spring forth from our hearts joyfully. If you're rejoicing in the gospel yourself and rehearsing it to yourself constantly, then you're going to be prepared. Trust me. I've seen this happen in my own life. I was very timid when I first became a Christian to share Christ with people who I didn't know how they were going to respond. It was easy for me to do it with the down and outers because I knew that they weren't going to respond negatively. But the people that I'm like, I don't know, they might have lots of questions or they might get angry with me. They were the ones that I was really timid with. But as I've sunk myself by God's grace deeper into the gospel, I find myself more confident, more ready to share the gospel with other people because I'm rehearsing it myself constantly. You see, the main reason we aren't prepared and quick to share the gospel is because we aren't preaching it to ourselves constantly. And lastly, Peter says that we are to share Christ with others with gentleness and respect. Now, this is really important because there's no better way to destroy a witness for Christ than to, not, than to share the gospel void of gentleness and respect. Have you ever seen somebody do this? You just want to go up and, and put your hand over their mouth and say, don't, don't say anything else. It would almost be better if you didn't share the gospel at all if that's how you're going to do it. And I know people do this because I've seen them do it and I've done it myself, unfortunately. 
So let me use myself as, as, a, as a bad example. Here's how I've shared the gospel poorly in two ways without gentleness and respect. First of all, I've done it in a condescending way where I feel superior to the other person. You know what I'm talking about? And the reason that I was condescending to them was because I was sharing the gospel out of pride. How come they can't see this? What's their problem? I'm so much better than them. That's why I believe in God. It's so clear. Why can't they see it? And let me tell you, if you share the gospel that way in a condescending way, they're going to be able to tell. They're going to be able to tell and it's going to turn them off so fast. And you are just going to destroy your witness for Jesus. And that's not what he calls us to. Second of all, I've shared the gospel in a combative way where I just wanted to, to win the argument. I wasn't really concerned about them. I just wanted to win. And the reason I was combative was because I was afraid. I was afraid that they'd ask me a question that I couldn't answer and I'd lose the argument so I turned it literally into a verbal war. My, 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 my heart wasn't for them. It was for winning the argument and that showed up. And so if that's how we evangelize, we won't be sharing the gospel with gentleness and respect as God calls us to do. You see, brothers and sisters, the battle between the flesh and the spirit affects us even as we're evangelizing. But the good news is that Jesus came to do, again, what we failed to do. He perfectly feared God his entire life. And he never feared man, not once, ever. As a result, Jesus perfectly proclaimed the glories of the Father always, constantly. He never backed down from glorifying the Father, even when it cost him his life. And Jesus was perfectly gentle and respectful in our place. You remember what he says of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, I am gentle and humble of heart. So brothers and sisters, we have so much to rejoice over, so much to rejoice over. Jesus has conquered our flesh. It has been crucified with him on the cross and we are now led by the Spirit and have been made a new creation in Jesus. Therefore, let us continue to fight against the flesh and treasure Jesus by participating in gospel-centered community together. As we look to how Jesus perfectly accomplished everything for us, let us follow his example of humility leading to unity of mind tender-heartedness leading to sympathy and let it all be done in brotherly love. And as we continue to fight against the flesh and treasure Jesus by persevering in gospel-centered suffering, let us do so. As we rejoice in how Jesus perfectly accomplished everything for us, let us follow his example of blessing those who curse us and seeking peace with those whom we need to be reconciled. And finally, let us continue to fight against the flesh and treasure Jesus more by preparing for gospel-centered witness. As we delight in how Jesus perfectly accomplished everything for us, let us follow his example of fearing God more than man, giving glory to God rather than ourselves, and being gentle and respectful. By God's sovereign grace, may we be a people who honor Christ the Lord together as holy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. 
We're so thankful that we approach it not as a burdensome thing, that we can approach it not as, as, as a burden that we strap onto our backs and then we set our face towards the celestial city trying to earn our own salvation. Rather, Lord, we see it as something that frees us. It's no longer a burden or a curse to us because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled it on our behalf. And so now for us, the law is a source of joy. It's a source of the good life. It's not the good life as the world understands it, but it's the good life as you, our Heavenly Father, says that it should be what in reality is the good life. And so, Father, in light of the gospel, we pray that we would be like your son, that we would participate in gospel-centered community. Lord, that we would, if we are not already, get involved in a grace group and start to pour in each other's lives and manifest humility of mind, which will lead to unity of mind. That we would manifest our tender-heartedness, which would, would, would manifest itself in sympathy. And that, Lord, it would all be done in brotherly love as we follow Jesus' example. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to persevering in gospel-centered suffering. It's so difficult, Lord, when we're in the, the thick of it. It's easy to know how to respond intellectually, but when we're in the thick of it experientially, we fall short. And so we pray that your spirit would empower us to be a people who bless those who curse us, that we would pray for those who speak evil against us, that we would seek peace and pursue it and reconciliation. Lord, if there are any unreconciled relationships between us this morning, that we would, right this moment, pursue peace with each other. Lord, that we might imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would be committed to um, preparing ourselves for gospel-centered witness. Lord, that we would not fear man, that we would fear you, that we would rejoice in the gospel ourselves, that we would constantly be preaching it to ourselves so that it would then be natural to share it with other people. And Lord, as we do so, may we do it with gentleness and respect. Lord, I pray that we would be a changed people as a result of our time hearing from you speak to us this morning. And Lord, if there are any unbelievers in our midst, I pray that they would not walk out of here unbelievers, but that you would radically transform them, that you would draw them to yourself and change their hearts. We're so thankful, Lord, for the power of your word and the truth that it will accomplish all for which you have sent it out to accomplish. We ask this all in the precious name of the word who became flesh and saved us, Jesus. Amen.